And now, The Mentors, one of the most popular and unique shows on the radio today. Each week, one of our four remarkable CEOs, including Tom Lord, John Phillips, and Rick Brutico, will challenge your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their success and for consistently putting people first, treating employees and customers with respect, and helping others succeed, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Now, here's your mentor. Welcome. This is Tom Laurie, and my guest today is Stephen Eubel, who is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Pharma, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, which represents America's leading biopharmaceutical research companies. The biopharmaceutical sector directly employs more than 854,000 Americans and invests more than $90 billion in research and development every year, more than any other industry in America. I want to make a little disclosure. I am a co-founder and CEO of an exciting young drug company. So this is a field I'm very familiar with. Pharma is an organization, although I'm not a member, I'm very familiar with the work that they do. Uh, The company I lead is called Biologics, and we're focused on a new anti-cancer therapy in the field field of immuno-oncology, just as a disclosure. So I want to welcome you, Steve. Uh, Thank you for joining us from Washington. COVID is on the mind of everybody. So let's start out. What has life been like for you leading the the pharma uh, through this extremely uh, chaotic period and with a lot of pressure on trying to find vaccines and therapeutics to help get things back to normal? Well, thanks, Tom. It's uh, it's great to be with you. Great to reconnect. Um, I'm really proud of the way the industry has rallied uh, since the virus was first sequenced back in early uh, January. We've really made tremendous progress in the fight against COVID-19. And I'll just touch briefly on the four fronts that our industry is focused on. The first is testing. Um, our companies are, are partnering with other life sciences companies on uh, testing platforms. Roche, one of our largest members, probably running the greatest number of uh, COVID-19 tests. But what your listeners may not be familiar with is that uh, most drug companies have uh, lab capabilities uh, within their manufacturing capabilities. So one of our member companies, Eli Lilly, actually opened a drive-through testing center in Indianapolis to supplement the public health authorities uh, there. So testing is, is one area that companies are focused on. They're also scanning their global libraries to repurpose existing medicines that have already been approved by FDA and testing them against COVID-19. There are now over 1,600 trials uh, testing nearly 500 unique therapies. And I'll just touch on you know some of the more exciting. Your, your listeners are probably aware of remdesivir, um, which uh, is a drug that was initially developed for Ebola, where Gilead spent a billion dollars developing the drug and it failed. Uh, but it was uh, studied uh, and, and proved effective against COVID-19, particularly at the later stages of disease. And it's important to point out these drugs are being made available to patients uh, today in the, in the context of, of clinical trials or emergency use authorizations. Um, they're also testing anticoagulants because we know blood clotting is an issue for patients who are infected and anti-inflammatory agents, uh, the cytokine storm that really triggers that inflammation 
in uh, the lungs, uh, various medicines being tested uh, for that as well. And then companies are, are, of course, focused on developing new therapies. One of the more exciting areas is monoclonal antibodies. Uh, Regeneron and Lilly both have uh, monoclonal antibodies that are are close to approval. Uh, You probably are aware the president received Regeneron's uh, monoclonal antibodies. So what are monoclonal antibodies? You know, if you or I were to get infected, our body would trigger antibodies. Uh, But these are antibodies that are actually bioengineered, so you're looking for the most effective um, antibodies against COVID-19 to neutralize the uh, the virus. So that's very exciting in particular because it, be, it can be used at the earlier stages of disease. And then, of course, the companies are focused on a vaccine. Today, there are more than 40 unique vaccines in clinical trials, uh, testing five distinctly different approaches uh, to vaccines. And uh, that's really important because we're going to need a lot of shots on goal. Not all of these vac- vaccines are going to be effective or going to work. Um, you know, the body responds to the immune system, uh, or the immune system rather responds to these um, vaccines in different ways. Uh, but three or four are already in late stage, uh, and we're likely to see approvals uh, fourth quarter of this year, first quarter of next year. So those are uh, the four areas our companies are really focused on right now. And when you say, for our listeners, when you say repurposed, what do you mean by repurposed? Yeah, so these are medicines that are already approved for different diseases or different conditions that are being studied um, for their effectiveness against COVID-19. So in a way, they're repurposing an old medicine for a new disease, uh, and that's really the way innovation uh, works in our industry. It's, it's um, you know, testing a compound for a number of years. Uh, you find one that works. Uh, and then you test it either in combination with other therapies or against other diseases, and that's how innovation happens. And cytokine storm, which I'm familiar with, I don't think our uh, audience, when in layman's term, what is a cytokine storm? Because we do read more about that in the paper today. Yeah, what happens, um, it's your body's immune system sort of overreacting uh, to the virus, and it sets off a vicious cycle in the body. Uh, in, in terms of your inflammatory system. So um, obviously this is a virus that targets the respiratory system, and if you have an overreaction of that inflammatory response, um, it, that's what causes lung uh, damage and, and compromised breathing and so forth. So being able to arrest that process is a big part of the research underway. And we're hearing uh, more recently now a couple of things that are innovative is that they've uh, apparently started to manufacture some of these vaccines ahead of approval. I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, but the other thing is that t- the, there's some concern about, about whether or not the vaccines will be safe. And to some extent, it's been politicized. But could you address the issue of safety and uh, what's wh- what you see uh, when these things are approved? Yeah, your listeners should be assured um that when a vaccine is approved by the FDA, it will be safe and effective. Um, Nine of our companies are involved in vaccine research, and they recently made a pledge uh, that they won't even submit to the FDA until they have complete phase three data, uh, which is large pivotal uh, trial 
where you've got tens of thousands of individuals receiving uh, the therapy, uh, and they'll be tracking those patients for some time before an approval is uh, is imminent. So um, we have regular interaction w- w- with the FDA. We support the FDA's uh, independent judgment, you know, informed by an advisory committee of experts that are independent from the agency. So again, your your listeners should be uh, assured that when the FDA approves a vaccine, it will be safe and effective. And I read that uh, one of the companies, maybe more than one, has already begun this, as I mentioned earlier, commercial stage production before, I think, one company before any human had been dosed. Now, that's quite unusual, isn't it? It is. And I have to say, we're seeing unprecedented collaboration between our members and between our members and the government. So you have a situation today where, where companies are manufacturing even before they know whether the product's going to be approved or not, so that if it is approved, there's a bolus of product that's available. We can get it to patients as quickly as possible. We also have a unique situation where one company has agreed to uh, manufacture a competitor's product. Uh, You know, industry is really taking unprecedented steps to make sure that when we do have safe and effective treatments that we can get them to patients as quickly as possible. Well, we're going to come back in a couple of minutes with our guest mentor, Steve Ubel, who's the president and CEO of Pharma. Thank you for listening. Thank you for spreading the word about the Mentors Radio. Our podcast downloads have increased 500% since January. Make sure you tell your friends. You can go to our website, thementorsradio.com, and click on past shows to find many of our great guests. This is Tom Laurie, and you're listening to the Mentors Radio. And now... Back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and I'm with today's guest mentor, Steve Ubel, President and Chief Executive Officer of Pharma, which represents America's leading biopharmaceutical research companies. Remember, you can listen to this show or any previous show via podcast and iTunes, TuneIn, Spotify, Google, and more on any device, anytime. Subscribe at TheMentorsRadio.com. In the last segment, we talked about COVID and the efforts of the biopharmaceutical industry to help uh, this country get back to some type of normal environment. I'd like to, uh, another issue that's come up uh, recently with COVID has been, as we've seen the uh, offshore manufacturing and how many of our drug manufacturing operations have moved out of the United States with uh, a large number being in China. Uh, could you, is, do you see that changing as a result of what's happening with COVID and bringing more of that back here? Well, I think uh, actually, Tom, there's a, a large portion of um, the branded pharmaceutical industries manufacturing that does occur in the United States. And that's been accelerating in recent years as the U.S. has made various tax tax changes to make the U.S. manufacturing environment much more competitive. So, you know, we certainly support, you know, more incentives to to invest in advanced manufacturing in the U.S. But as you point out, you know, the industry is a a, uh, global industry and there is manufacturing outside of the United States in Europe and in Asia. Um, And in general, we've been educating policymakers that um, a robust global diverse supply chain is a feature, not a bug, um, and trying to avoid you know, policy changes that would be abrupt or that would constrain the supply chain uh, because that might exacerbate problems that policymakers are trying to solve and may actually exacerbate shortages or lead to price increases. So actually, 
the generic industry has a, it's a bit more dependence on China and India. The branded uh, industry that I represent, the innovative sector, has relatively a small portion of its manufacturing in China or India, uh, and it's a much more diverse um, supply chain. Now, having said that, obviously, if there are specific problems, we, we don't want to have a, a essential medicine uh, tied to, to only one country. Um, so we, you know, are pragmatic about it. If there are those uh, products that are tied or overly dependent on one country, we should, we should, in a targeted way, solve that. But again, in general, we think a, a robust, diverse supply chain is a benefit that that helps uh, ensure uh, consistent supply. Now, you talked about the incredible collaboration with members of the uh, of pharma to move things along. What do you think is going to be the new norm for drug development post-COVID? I mean, the regulatory barriers have been broken. You've got this collaboration underway. Uh, do, you, do you see a new norm after COVID? I do. I do. You know, we actually have a, a weekly interaction with FDA leadership. One week it's on vaccines, the next it's on therapeutics. And it's all aimed at identifying uh, bottlenecks that might occur and how to address them. And uh, you, you mentioned the unprecedented cooperation and collaboration that's occurring. I mean, our companies are, are developing master trial protocols. Um, they're sharing patient-level data from those clinical trials in real time. You know, typically you would, you would post that information on clinicaltrials.gov, uh, and there would be a lag associated with it. Um, but, you know, we're working with the government and within our membership to uh, develop master clinical trials and sharing patient-level data in real time. And uh, as I mentioned on the manufacturing capacity side, uh, we're making sure that, that if there's a monoclonal antibody approved for, for wide use, a vaccine, obviously, that, um, that we're, again, seeing around the corner and making sure that there's adequate uh, manufacturing capacity. So I actually think a lot of the uh, communication that's occurring at an unprecedented level and some of those trial design uh, issues uh, will hopefully persist after, after COVID is resolved. Well, that sounds great. I think the collaboration itself can really move things along more quickly for everybody. Uh, this is Tom Laurie. You're listening to The Mentors Radio. We're talking with Pharma CEO Steve Hubel, who's consistently named to Modern Healthcare's 100 Most Influential People in Healthcare. Now, you mentioned clinicaltrials.gov. Let's just spend a minute and tell my audience what that's all about, because getting people into clinical trials, number one, is always problematic, and it slows down the development of drugs. And secondly, a lot of people out there may have some uh, disease or something, and they're looking for clinical trials to, to get involved in. So could you talk a little bit about the, that website? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's run by the, uh, by the government, by NIH. Uh, and it's a great place to go uh, if you're a patient who's interested in learning the latest about clinical trials that are available uh, for for a treatment that you might be interested in or a disease that you may be impacted by. Um, and it's it's a great source of information. My only point was that you know there tends to be a lag in terms of when that information is is posted and when trials are completed. There's a, a vetting process that that. Uh, you know, you have to go through before the results are actually posted on the site. So we're sort of avoiding that in this case by really sharing the information 
uh, with the government, and the government is in turn sharing it among the, the companies involved uh, to ensure that we can, again, make this process as streamlined and, and uh, efficient as possible without compromising safety. Yeah, and the point I wanted to get to is the fact that p- people out there that are dealing with something and are trying to figure out where are the clinical trials, you have clinicaltrials.gov, and I believe there are some others that are specific to different diseases that tell people in those advocacy groups uh, where they can go find uh, some of the innovative things that are being done if they'd like to join in a cr- clinical trial. With that being said, the drug industry has some real importance to you and your family. Uh, I mean, it's one thing from a career standpoint. But first of all, tell us, uh, how many children do you have? I have two kids. I have a 17-year-old son, Christopher, and a 14-year-old uh, daughter, Clara. And one of them has uh, a, ch- a health challenge, right? Yes. My son, uh, Chris, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes uh, when he was 11 years old, uh, so six years ago. And it really was a um, came out as a bolt out of the blue. Neither my wife or my family has been impacted by, by type 1 diabetes. And uh, you and I share a history in the medical technology industry, but I'll never forget the day that Chris was diagnosed. I had actually just given a talk to my board of directors at the time. I was leading an association that represented the medical technology industry, and we had just uh, launched an educational effort around you know key life-changing technologies, and we had a video about somebody that was uh, benefiting from uh, the artificial pancreas or the ability to measure blood glucose in the body and uh, have a patient uh, dose themselves at this point with a um, with a with an infusion pump uh, made by Medtronic at the time. And uh, no sooner that we had ended the video to my board that my wife called and told me that our son had been diagnosed. And I have to say, Tom, it's been it's been really challenging for Chris. You know, you have to if you're not familiar with type one diabetes. You know, you have to monitor your uh, blood sugar throughout the day. Uh, he he uh, pricks his finger, you know, four or five times a day, and then he has to take injections of insulin uh, to correspond with any meal he has, uh, and then he takes long-acting insulin at night. So for those uh, listeners who have 10-year-olds, um, you know, they tend not to like needles. And uh, when I was had to give my son his first shot of insulin, I'll never forget, he actually ran out the front door of our house. And uh, very little, uh, you know, as a parent, uh, prepares you uh, for a moment like that. Um, so, I, you know, I've spent my career in healthcare and, and in the life sciences. And I don't know, the New York Times used to have a, a great slogan, if you don't get it, you don't get it. Um, and I sort of feel that way about, you know, people who have been impacted the way my family has with somebody that suffers from a chronic disease. Uh, if you don't get it, you don't get it. I thought I got it uh, until somebody really close to me uh, was impacted by a chronic disease. And it's uh, it's challenging. You know, now he's a teenager and he's, he's uh, doing better, but he, you know, if you have teenagers at home, uh, you know, vigilance and discipline are not exactly at the top of the, huh. the, uh, the trait list. Uh, so, you know, he's got to stay on top of it, and we, we have to stay on top of him still. But, um, you know, I, it, it is also a reminder of why I'm such a passionate advocate for this industry, because there's such great promise in the future uh, to, to grow 
beta cells in the pancreas, what happens, you know, type 1 is different from type 2. It's, a, it's an autoimmune disease where the body, again, similar to what we were talking about with COVID, attacks the body's um, immune system, or the immune system attacks the uh, pancreas, rather, and, uh, and the beta cells are compromised in the pancreas. Well, now there's technology uh, being tested by several companies to, to grow those beta cells uh, back, and there's research about the best way to place them in the body, and we have to overcome, um, you know, the body's going to still fight the foreign uh, cells, so we have to protect the cells in some fashion. Um, but that's the uh, both the engineering and the uh, and the biopharmaceutical challenge to, to get a cure to type 1. So I am very personally uh, motivated to, to ensure that our companies can continue to innovate because I've seen firsthand what it's like to live with a, with a chronic disease. Well, we're going to come back in a few minutes, and let's uh, when we return, let's talk a little bit about what it takes to bring a drug to market. We're with Steve Eubel, the president and CEO of Pharma. This is Tom Laurie, and this is the Mentors Radio. And now... Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and I'm with today's guest mentor, Steve Eubel, President and Chief Executive Officer of Pharma, which represents America's leading biopharmaceutical research companies. Remember, you can hear us on the Salem Radio Network in California and Texas and online anytime at TheMentorsRadio.com or on any podcast forum. Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify. So let's talk a little bit about what it takes to bring a drug to market. You spoke earlier about the repurposing of drugs, which in many ways some of the safety work has already been done. But very briefly, because I want to get into more about uh, what you do, uh, what it, what are the challenges, what are the costs, what are the timelines? Uh, give our audience a sense of, you know, first of all, the, the amount of time and money it takes to do this and, and also the risk. Yeah, thanks, Tom. It's, uh, it takes, on average, about 10 to 15 years uh, from the initial stages of medicine development to FDA approval, uh, and approximately $2.6 billion uh, when you factor in the cost of medicines that fail. Uh, and if you step back, actually, it's just 12% of investigational medicines that enter clinical trials that eventually are approved uh, by the FDA. So, Failure, failure is really the hallmark of, of the industry, and we all learn, of course, from failure. Um, but think about the researchers and scientists who work in our industry who might spend a decade or more of their lives focused on a disease or a treatment, and uh, you know, approaching 90% of the time, it just doesn't work. Uh, the industry spent over $103 billion uh, last year uh, on development. So it's, a, it's, a, it's our industry, unlike when we spend time together in the, in the medical technology industry, you know, the medical device industry is more like the software industry marked by very short product life cycles, 18 months uh, at a time, rapid incremental improvements in the product. Pharma is a much riskier long-term uh, capital investment cycle uh, that can stretch a decade or more. And uh, once you find a compound that works, of course, you have some level of patent protection um, granted to the medicine. Uh, a lot of that patent time is eaten up by the regulatory uh, process and clinical development process. Um, 
But I think it's important to, to, to point out as well that really medicine is the only item in healthcare where the price actually goes down. We have this societal bargain where you, you have patent protection for a limited time, uh, and then the product is 80% off uh, or, or more. You, know, you think about statins, which single-handedly drove incredible uh, longevity gains tied to cardiovascular health, um, and now it's a generic medicine at pennies a day. You contrast that with other other aspects of the healthcare system. You know, coronary bypass surgery is hundred thousand dollars today. It's going to be one hundred twenty thousand dollars five years from now, et cetera. So, um, you know, I'm really proud of of the track record the industry has an in investment, uh, and we're really on the cusp of a very exciting time on the science where you've got immunotherapies, as as you know well, CAR T and other. Uh, innovations that are, are turning cancer into a manageable chronic condition. We've cured hepatitis C. We've got cell and gene therapies uh, on the immediate horizon that will treat diseases like hip, uh, sickle cell disease, hemophilia, um, and uh, the first cell therapy, cell and gene therapy approved by the FDA to reverse blindness in kids with a rare retinal disorder. So never been more exciting uh, on the science side for our industry. What what would be a good career path, or what should somebody do if they really want to get involved in a pharmaceutical industry? Take a kid that's sixteen years old. What what would you tell them? Well, her, it, him it, or her? It, 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 you know, it's a it's a fantastic industry um, to, to get involved in, uh, and you can make a real difference in in patients' lives. Um, and you know, there are many ways to uh, to get involved. You know, my daughter, for example, is really excited about science. And so I've been trying to expose her uh, to researchers and scientists in our industry. Uh, I had one of them speak to her ninth grade class recently uh, to talk about the various uh, career paths within pharma for somebody who's interested in science or, or research. Um, but these are great companies. They're multinational uh, companies that are focused on improving human health. I got involved in the public policy side because that's what really animated my career um, choices. But it's a great industry to invest in and lots of opportunities. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about your journey and how you ended up in pharma. So we're with Steve Eubel, the president and CEO of Pharma. And we'll be back in a few minutes after this break. This is Tom Laurie, and this is the Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and I am with today's guest mentor, Steve Eubel, President and Chief Executive Officer of Pharma, which represents America's leading pharmaceutical research industry. So, what were you thinking when you were 16 years old? Where were where was your head? Where were you headed? Where were you going? What did you want to do with your life? Well, I, I was always very interested in current events. You know, from the earliest time I can remember, uh, I enjoyed reading the paper. I followed events uh, in my local community. I was really uh, drawn to, um, you know, the drama of, of presidential campaigns. And I don't know, I always... I uh, was interested in, in uh, politics and political science and, uh, and thought about, you know, becoming a lawyer or, um, you know, getting involved in the electoral process 
uh, very early or, or studying political science when I went to college. So I would say current events really, uh, really interested me early. And did you have any mentors yourself or any people that uh, pushed you along? And Yeah, I, I was fortunate um, to work uh, for a senator from Minnesota. His name was Rudy Boschwitz, and um, I volunteered on his campaigns when I was a young man, and uh, he was a terrific mentor. Uh, he had actually been very successful in, in business and turned to politics as an avocation after, um, after that. And I remember he gave me great advice when we were together. I was um, I was interning for him in my freshman year in college, and I had great plans to become a city manager. And uh, all, all due respect to the city managers out there, my, my Senate uh, friend said, uh, that sounds like a terrible idea. Why would you want to be a city manager? You know, you want, when you're in college, you want to dine at the smorgasbord of, uh, of subject matters. You, you, you want to test uh, things that might interest you so that when you're done with college, you, you have uh, choices to make. And it just it really stuck with me. I was perhaps a little too pragmatic at the outset, and uh, I stepped back and, and really enjoyed uh, you know, art history and music and, and uh, scientific classes and language. And I don't know, I came back to politics, but I thought that was really good advice at the time. And I'm assuming from uh, what you're saying is that home must have been Minnesota? Yes, I, I was born and raised in Minnesota, which has a rich history of, of political engagement. Um, obviously, you've had uh, you know Vice President uh, Mondale and, and Vice President Humphrey, um, and uh, had m- many, many political conversations around our kitchen table, uh, although I was a bit of an outlier as a... Um, as a more conservative member of our family, most of our extended family uh, was on the other side of the aisle. And I'm assuming uh, you went to uh, the university? I Actually, I went to St. Cloud State University, which is um, uh, about an hour outside the Twin Cities uh, area. And um, one of the great things about being at St. Cloud is that they ran the polling uh, for the uh, Minneapolis Star Tribune, which is the main newspaper. So all the political polling, where you're tracking races and so forth, we ran out of the university, and I was quite involved in, in developing those uh, those polls and, and uh, you know, doing the research that flowed from uh, voter patterns. And uh, I took great pride in being able to tell anyone how they might vote by asking them a few questions about where they grew up, how their parents voted, whether what religion they were, what um, you know, whether they were in a city or a rural area. Uh, anyway, I learned early about uh, research and analysis and cross tabs, and and really enjoyed uh, that experience. This is Tom Laurie. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show. We're talking with Pharma CEO Steve Hubel, who is consistently named to Modern Healthcare's 100 Most Influential People in Healthcare. So. I am familiar with Minnesota. I worked. I started my career with Honeywell. I know St. Cloud State well. Uh, I laugh because when I lived, I didn't. Uh, I went to uh, University of Notre Dame. Anyways, I I laughed because when I got up there, everyone when they talked about college, they said uni- the university. So it's nice to know. And there are many universities in Minnesota. It's just it's funny how they 
talk about the university, so I had to yeah, the U. at least comment. The U, the U. So I know St. Cloud State. I've got many friends from there. That's terrific. Um, and it's good to have a Midwesterner. I'm a Midwesterner. It's good to have a Midwesterner back in Washington. Some of that uh, can-do, show-me-the-proof kind of spirit. So um, you you then moved on, and what was your first job when you came out of college? Yeah, so I, I interned for Senator Boschwitz, and, and uh, when I graduated from college, I knew I wanted to go to Washington. I had interned in Washington as well for a public affairs firm. And, um, you know, it was not as uh, seamless as, uh, you know, you might like. I actually moved to Washington, and the senator that I had worked for, I had intended to, you know, be, become a staff person for him, and he lost. He was the only incumbent to lose uh, in 1990. He lost to Senator Paul Wellstone, who uh, sadly died in a plane crash um, several years uh, after that. Uh, after a distinguished career in the Senate. Um, so then I went to work for a senator from Iowa, Chuck Grassley, who's still serving. Um, he's quite active on, on health care issues, and I owe my career in health care in many respects to the Clinton health plan being uh, really the dominant issue in the early 90s uh, when I was working on the Hill. So we needed extra arms and legs uh, on health care to meet with various constituent uh, organizations. And so I spent uh, time you know, learning healthcare, and I, I feel like I got my graduate level education in health policy. Really attending bipartisan meetings um, on on the Clinton health plan, and uh, from there I worked in, in a succession of um, senior leadership roles in healthcare trade associations. I started out uh, working for the investor-owned hospital uh, sector. I spent 16 years in the medical device industry, uh, 10 as the CEO of uh, Advamed the leading association for those companies, and then I've uh, been at Pharma for the last five years. So that's that's the Reader's Digest version. And what do you think your claim to fame is in terms of what you're good at? Well, uh, gosh, you know, in, in, in Minnesota, we're, we're sort of uh, circumspect about these things. Uh, but but I have to say, I've, I've the best advice I've gotten in my young career was to dive into the substance, that when you're engaging with a member of Congress or their staff on your issues, you should know more about those issues than anyone else. You ought to be able to answer questions and really uh, go deep. Um, so I've prided myself uh, in each of my career stops to mastering the, the substance of the issues uh, because in mastering you have to be able to master the substance before you can convey a message effectively. So. Uh, to the degree I have a gift, I've I've gone deep on the substance, and I've been able to synthesize complex information and convey it to policymakers in a concise way that um, that's meaningful. Well, when we come back, we're going to continue talking about your journey. We're with Steve Ubel, the president and CEO of Pharma, which represents the biopharmaceutical sector of our economy, one that directly employs more than 854,000 Americans and invests more than $90 billion in research and development every year. You'll find all of our show notes and links at TheMentorsRadio.com. When you are there, make sure you subscribe so you do not miss any of our shows. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. 
Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and I'm with today's guest mentor, Steve Ubel, who is the president and chief executive officer of Pharma, which represents America's leading biopharmaceutical research companies. So tell me, what is a typical day like for you? That's a great question. No day is, uh, two days are the same. Um, you know, right now, uh, I'm working from home, like many others, and uh, so my day is uh, is consumed with Zoom call after Zoom call, uh, and that's really changed lobbying, by the way, uh, which is a very physical, uh, you know, profession in, in many respects. You're you're on the hill, you're meeting with lawmakers, um, and nobody's doing that anymore. So you know, you have virtual interaction, of course, and and phone conversations, but it has fundamentally changed uh, the way we interact with with policymakers. You know, but pharma is a large organization. We have over 200 staff. Um, we have offices in China, Japan, the Middle East. Uh, it's it's incredibly intellectually stimulating. We work on FDA regulatory issues. We work on reimbursement issues with the Medicare program, uh, trade issues. So no two days uh, are the same. Um, you know, we have 35 I have 35 board members that are the CEOs of the world's largest uh, pharmaceutical companies. And so, you know, we're, we're um, you know, very focused on, on really three things, making sure there's a transparent, efficient regulatory process that we maintain uh, strong intellectual property protections, uh, particularly since there's a great risk involved in developing a new medicine, and that when a product is approved by the agency, by FDA, that, um, you know, we can get to market, a market that's hopefully free from price controls. Because if you look at the countries that have gravitated towards the government deciding the value of a medicine, patients uh, just plain uh, tend to have less access to the latest uh, treatments and cures. And so that's what we're focused on, and and, uh, we're engaged with policymakers on a wide variety of issues, but it's all focused on ensuring that we continue to have this world-leading innovation ecosystem. Uh, that we have here in the U.S. I mean, we have the best doctors and hospitals. Uh, we have the best, um, you know, capital uh, formation. We have terrific, um, you know, partnerships between government and academia, and, and others can benefit from that through the Bayh-Dole uh, Act and structure that it created. So we have the secret sauce in the U.S. Uh, to developing uh, breakthrough treatments and cures and we're about focusing on ensuring that that, that it stays that way. So you have a high-pressure job. How do you unplug? Uh, that's a great question. I I, um, I enjoy spending time with my family. I, I strive for as much balance as I, I can get. Uh, and I uh, enjoy working out, playing golf. Uh, grew up in Minnesota, so I like the winter sports as well. Um, but uh, I have to say, uh, golf has been a godsend because it's one of the few things you can do safely uh, outside during COVID. And who is one, what, what one person really inspired you? I was really influenced um, by Jim Collins early in my career. I became the CEO of Advomet at a very uh, young age, at 36. And we had uh, Jim speak to our board and, and really work with our board um, on strategic planning. And, and he became an informal uh, coach of mine, both through his writings, his book, you know, uh, Good to Great and Built to Last, 
uh, I was just I was really inspired by his sort of quantitative analysis of companies and why they succeeded and CEOs. Uh, what were the the traits of effective CEOs? And so you know I still lean on his work today. You know, getting the right people on the bus and the right seats on the bus uh, is absolutely key to success in, in any enterprise. And I feel like my you know one of the keys to my success has been having an incredibly strong uh, team and a, and a very high hiring batting average. Um, and then level five leadership. You know, Collins uh, writes about two seemingly contradictory traits that are really, uh, you know, key to the most successful CEOs. One is uh, willfulness and the other is humility. And uh, so having this sort of stubborn focus on results and uh, drive to, to get those results uh, but not making it about yourself, uh, but about the team and about your your goal and cause, uh, in my case, life-changing innovation and, and uh, saving and improving lives. And, uh, and so he's been a key influence in my, in my young career. So we got about a minute and a half left. I got a couple of questions. The first one is, uh, is there any decision looking back that you would love to take back? Wow, that's a great question. Um, well, I, I would say that um, at, at times I, I would have liked to have um, stayed in public service uh, a little bit longer, and maybe I'll have the opportunity to go back and do that uh, again. Um, but I've also found the private sector to be enormously uh, rewarding and, and impactful. Um, you know, of course, I, I look back at, at uh, various decisions I made uh, along the way and uh, wish I'd studied a little bit harder, uh, wish I'd been, you know, a little bit more um, focused uh, when I was a teenager uh, and, and looking at colleges and so forth. But um, by and large, I'm, I'm pretty happy with uh, my, my decisions along the way. And uh, I guess... The other thing is, is you know, I, I, it sounds like uh, these people that you've talked about. Tell me a little bit about your parents, your mom and dad. What, what do they do? What have they done? You know, what yeah, influence were they? They, uh, you know, I, I should have said if there's anyone who's been the most impactful in my life, it's been it's been my parents. I was um, I was adopted actually uh, when I was four months old, as was my sister. Uh, from a different family, and you know, the you know, to the degree that I have been grounded, that I have confidence, um, and have been you know driven, it's it's all been because I have this incredible core that I've felt this unconditional love for my parents um, from a very young age. You know, adoption is is just such a great thing. Uh, it's not to say that 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 parents, you know, all parents don't love their kids, but when you really have to work for it and wait for a child for a year or more. Um, I just, I really felt that, that overwhelming, unconditional love, and it's, it's a big part of um, why I feel like I've got this strong uh, core. And you've met a lot of people in your career uh, in both the public and private sector. What is it that you've observed that separates those who are happy from those who are not? You know, I, I think the people that are happiest are people that can, um, you know, not take themselves too seriously, 
to be balanced in the best best sense of the word um, that have you know chosen to en- enrich their lives in, in many and varied ways um, and, and I try to emulate that I, I, I really I'm very focused on, uh, on on work and on on you know being uh, an effective leader at, at a very important time for our industry uh, but I want to be judged as well by you know was I a good husband was I a good father um, was I engaged in my community uh, to make it better? And I don't know. I think the people that are happiest have an extra gear, uh, and they have bandwidth, um, and they they really apply their talents in many and varied ways. And what um, do you keep in touch with people that you've met along the way? Are you pretty good at keeping in touch with people? I am. Uh, I am. I really do try to block out time. Um, you know, I have good friends from high school growing up, from college, and, and uh, Washington is the smallest town in America. Uh, if you work in healthcare in, in Washington, um, you know, I've got many, many good friends uh, that I've, I've met and had the opportunity to work uh, with and for and uh, have benefited from their mentorship, and, and hopefully I've mentored a few uh, myself along the way. Um, so Washington is, is uh, despite what you might uh, think, uh, actually a fairly tight-knit place that uh, I've forged many friendships. Although well, I do thank have three you dogs, for- too. Well, thank you very much, Steve, for joining us. Uh, For people that might be interested in learning more about the pharmaceutical industry, there's a online free subscription you can get to called Fierce Pharma uh, that'll update you on a lot of things that are going on in the industry. We've been talking with Steve Eubel, the president and CEO of Pharma, uh, who uh, an industry that employs more than 854,000 Americans. You can learn more about this and other shows by going to our website. When you are there, make it easy for yourself and subscribe to future shows. Remember, too, you can also listen to us online, any device, anytime at TheMentorsRadio.com or on any podcast platform. Join us next week at the same time for the next edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Tom Laurie signing off for today. Remember to be all that you can be and let the candle be lit for all who struggle in the darkness. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.